danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 314 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Cherokee, North Carolina. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Carlos Welch, also in Cherokee, North Carolina. What's going on, everybody? Good to be back on the podcast. It's exciting. People, even, even I mean, obviously I'm excited that we're doing this in person, but uh, when people heard that we were both down here, that was like the question on Twitter. It was like, are you guys going to do a live podcast and the answer is of course yes always anytime we get a chance to do a live one we jump on it i mean i guess it's probably for the better that we're not recording uh 100 of the time that we're together but i do like there's definitely a part of it anytime that we're talking i'm like oh this would be good content this would be good content um yeah, yeah but i guess some of it we probably wouldn't be saying if we knew that we we're gonna be on <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but if you can think of anything in particular that we want to bring up i know i have one i want to bring up yeah I'm, I'm pretty i'm pretty eager to hear this this news that you've been uh saving so i mean so we, let's, let's just get into it. Let's jump right into the news. So this is probably not good podcasting. So I'm going to try to make this audio and visual. You could probably guess. I want to see if you can guess it. I, feel, I got a feeling you can guess. Are you pregnant? Yeah, I'm pregnant. You already, <laughs> you already guessed that one. That was wrong last yeah, time. Okay. Too. Well, I didn't know. I mean, things can change. <laughs> Never know. Um, uh, are you working for a training site? Okay, good. You don't know. <laughs> so I'll show you. Okay, yeah. This is the news. Oh, a new van. That's not a van. That is a Prius, my friend. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. I, should, no, I, should, I should have known, yeah. <laughs> so I finally bought the Prius that I've been talking about for, I guess, it might be close to a year now. And I finally got it. In. And the reason Andrew thought it was a van is because it's a Prius V. That kind of looks like a small minivan. Uh, or, or, well, he saw a picture of me standing in front of it. So, like, just relative size. It probably looks like a minivan standing beside <laughs> the, the, the me. But, um, so, um, the good thing about the Prius V is that it's a wagon. So, there's a decent amount of space in the back. Yeah. So, uh, I kind of want one of these now. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know this was a <laughs> Yeah. So, the way I have it set up, and, and I got to give a shout out to Andrew Peeper, who was the original poker player in a Prius. Oh, man. I like the sound of that. <laughs> it's almost like a, a alliteration. Poker, play, poker player in a Prius. Um, uh, n- learning his story kind of gave me the idea of it. And um, we talk, he and I talked about it a while back. But I didn't think it would work for me because I'm like three times the size of Andrew. Uh, people. He is a very... A very thin man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, of course you can live in a Prius. Like, it's not gonna work for me. But I didn't know about a Prius V then. So a Prius V has a little bit more room, and I rented one a while back and kind of tested it out. And it seemed like you know it's a um, tighter squeeze in the van, but I felt like I can fit all my stuff in there. So I got one, and I got an inverter installed in the back. The battery is actually in the back in these. 
So underneath the floor, I have an inverter connected to the electric battery that will kind of like basically keep it recharged all the time. So I can like, I have a power outlet. So I can actually like set up my big screen monitor and my laptop and just like play poker in there all night. And I can keep, whether I'm in a cold climate or a hot climate, I can keep the engine running off the electric battery also. So, so you can like run heat and air yes, conditioning and stuff. Yes. So nice. what I've been doing, I'm here in Atlanta. Well, uh, before I came up to Cherokee, I've been here in Atlanta um, at my grandmother's and I just park in front of her house every night and just like, you know, basically out in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've been loving it so far. What happened is before Thanksgiving, I was in San Diego and I drove all the way from San Diego to Atlanta. And when I got to Atlanta, and I was in my van. Um, when I got to Atlanta, I looked online and saw that this van was for sale in San Antonio. So I got on a plane and flew back to San Antonio where I just drove through, bought the car, and then drove it back to Atlanta. <laughs> so... Uh, the original Nitmobile, for those who um, have been following for a while, you may remember that that basically got stolen. Um, I let somebody borrow it, and they never gave it back. But it was—I don't, I don't think I knew that. You didn't know that. So, so this story was back right after I moved out of the house with um, Alex Fitzgerald, and I lived together in Laughlin or Bullhead City. Mm-hmm. And when he moved to the East Coast, I moved to a hotel in. Laughlin and I was headed home for Thanksgiving that year and the the original Nitmobile was kind of already on its like last leg so yeah. I didn't want to try to drive it across the country that one was a Chrysler town and country I bought another van which was the second Nitmobile that one was a Dodge Grand Caravan which basically looks exactly like a town and country same color and everything but now I'm sitting in this town with two vehicles, planning to drive one of them across the country and didn't have a place to put the other one. And since it was on its last legs anyway, I was just going to sell it to the junkyard for um, um, scrap metal for like 300 bucks. Um, but I was talking to the lady who worked at the hotel about it, and she was saying that she didn't have a car. And her husband was on dialysis. Well, she had a car, but her husband was on dialysis. And so he's like in a wheelchair and like they needed something with more room. So I told her, well, if you want to buy my van, uh, what you can do is basically borrow it until I get back from um, Atlanta. And if you like it, then you can buy it. And if not, when I get back, I'll just. Scrap it then. Yeah. So (laughs) that was the plan. We did that. Uh, She borrowed it, and when I got to Atlanta, she texted me and said that um, she got pulled over, and um, they impounded it. And when I responded, I was like, okay, which impound? She never replied, Mm -hmm. and I haven't really heard from her since. (laughs) So in my mind, she stole my van, but in her mind, it's somewhere in an impound, undisclosed impound somewhere in um, um, southern Nevada. So, um, that van is out there somewhere, (laughs) but luckily I just bought the second one, which has been serving me well over the past. I think it's been like two, two, three years now. And, um, I decided to get this, um, Prius because 
um, I'm doing better financially and uh, I wanted something that um, could handle um, charging the inverter and like, you know, having the climate control overnight. And so this is perfect. This is perfect. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Emily and I have done so. Well, I mean, she's she's doing actual sleeping in in the in the car, but you know, we've done some like trying to live out of the car, even if we're sleeping in a in a tent. And yeah, the biggest challenges have been uh, charging stuff, or like feeling like you need to like go somewhere to charge stuff, or you know, like, and then usually like paying something to you know you're just like buying a tea or whatever so that you can like charge your <laughs> devices or just like you know if, if you're more in the middle of nowhere it can be like kind of is that maybe a 20 minute drive to get to a place where you're gonna be able to charge your stuff in and then also the, the climate yes challenges which i remember being surprised that you were sleeping in the van in las vegas in july like that's, yeah that's pretty intense um when back when i had the ford explorer when i was um here in cherokee um before i met andrew um, I was sleeping in that thing in like 30 degree weather. Like, man, I think it might have been 27 one morning. I woke up and I was sleeping like, you know, my little basketball shorts that I always wear. And I can remember trying to open the door and I couldn't because the door kind of like froze shut. That's how cold it was. <laughs> but I was fine on the inside for some reason without, you know, any type of um, climate control. Um, just with like a comforter and, um, Pretty much that's it. Mm. Um, so I've gone from I've been able to sleep relatively comfortably in 27 degree weather here in Cherokee and in Vegas. I remember it was like 95 one night, like at midnight, being able to sleep at 95. And yeah, I was sweating, but I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> so it was possible, but it wasn't comfortable. This one, I can just set the temperature to like 70, and regardless of what climate I'm in, it'll kind of maintain that. Um, off of the battery and then when the battery dies the engine like automatically cuts on to recharge the battery and then shuts itself off so overnight at most I will have to spend maybe like two three bucks in gas mm -hmm. so this is gonna save me a lot of money um, first of all the van got about 20 miles per gallon and this thing gets about 40 45 mm -hmm. and so that's gonna help me a lot with all the driving and also like you said having to pay for a place to charge things like i would get hotel rooms very often like i probably stayed in hotel rooms maybe 150 to 200 days this year and i can cut a lot of that out um because now i have a power supply in the vehicle mm -hmm. so this thing i'm hoping is going to pay for itself in about you know a year or two um so I got, you know, I got to install the inverter. And so the van is a um, 2000 van. <laughs> the, the V. Yes, the V. The, the, the third generation of the uh, Knitmobile is a uh, 2014 um, um, Prius V. Um, and I'm hoping to have it to about 2041. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan. It does look like it's in better shape than the um, the van that I've seen you in previously. Yes, this is by far the best. Um, like when I first saw it, I was like, "Did Carlos buy a new car?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's by far the best, um, the newest car I've bought. The before this, it might have been this past um, Dodge Caravan I had, which was a 2007, and I bought that again. I think it was three years ago. So what is this? 2019. 
So 2016. Yeah, so it's like 10 years old when you bought it. Yeah, and this one is only um, five years old, but it does have a lot of miles on it, and it does have some have some issues. But I got such a good deal on it that it's worth whatever money I'm going to have to put in to get it up to um, par. It was good enough to get from San Antonio to Atlanta, and it was good enough to get from Atlanta to Cherokee. So so far so good. <laughs> but um, I paid six grand for it. And it has like 180,000 miles on it. Oh, wow. But these cars run a long time. Yeah. Like most of the ones that I saw had around that much or maybe a little bit over two. But the, the, these vehicles usually go from somewhere around like eight on the low end to maybe like 12 or 13 on the high end. Um, uh, 8,000 to 12,000. Um, the price. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about mileage. I was like, are you saying 800,000 miles? <laughs> the, the, the most I've seen is like three. Okay. Like, like, like 350, I think. You can get that much out of it. Um, but I might get 800 out of this one because um, <laughs> I'm going to have this one for a long time. Because First of all, um, the ability to have the electricity and the climate control, I don't see a reason to switch to another vehicle that doesn't have that. And the next one up would be uh, like my dream vehicle is a 2017 Chrysler Pacifica hybrid but even those because they're relatively new the cheapest you can get it used is like 30 grand hmm. and there'll be it'll be a long time before I'm willing to drop that much on a vehicle because I'm not going to get payments um, so yeah I'll be in this thing for a while hopefully keeping my fingers crossed <laughs> Well, that's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've been holding that news on this. We've been on this trip for like, what, four, three, four days yeah, now? Yeah, this is like, I think, our fourth day of seeing each other. Yeah, I was like, okay, don't talk about the Prius yet. Don't talk about the Prius <laughs> yet. But You did a good job. I really did. <laughs> yeah. If I had thought about it, maybe I would have come up with it. But Yeah, that's why I was like, I'm going to give you one guess. And then I was like, if you don't guess it right away, then it's like, okay, it's not. I appreciate. I, I don't enjoy those things where people are like, "Nope, guess again." Yeah, guess, just fucking tell me. Yeah, yeah. I was like, it, it may be more like obvious news if you can get it right away, but when you couldn't get it right away, I was like, "Okay, good. It's not yeah. like it, it was a worthy secret." I should have known better because I do remember when you first moved into the van. I remember, like, you know, we were in Vegas and mm -hmm. you just kind of mentioned it. Was, I think it might have even been like one of the last times we hung out before mm -hmm. you or I or both of us left Vegas. And you, it's, it sounded like sort of idle musing to me at the time. You're like, oh, I'm thinking about getting a van and just living in that. And then, like, a month later, you sent me a picture of a van and I was like, <laughs> oh, he, he was a lot closer to pulling the trigger on this than I realized. Yeah. And the last time we talked about the Prius was on. I don't remember which episode, but we recorded an episode of the podcast when I was in Portland. As a matter of fact, we had to like rush to finish it because it was like right before I was due to like uh, work. <laughs> so we recorded <laughs> record yeah. early in the morning. And I mentioned buying the Prius then, but I was kind of like on the fence. And I think I might have put it at like a 10 or 20% chance I would get one then. But it happened. It happened. So I'm super happy about yeah, it. Yeah, you seem very excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been great. So, I mean, on the one hand, I know like what brought you to Cherokee is the WSOP circuit that's going on right now. But as best I can tell, you're not playing the WSOP circuit. No, the circuit did not bring me here at all. What brought me here was hanging out with you and Briar and um, having a hotel room to crash in. Because had Briar or you not invited me here, I would have just been um, back home 
at my grandmother's house in the new Nitmobile, uh, which is good. Like, you know, I enjoy it, but like it's better to be, you know, see friends that I don't get to see often and also to be in a bed. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, hey, why not? Even though I'm not really interested in playing live poker, like, you know, I would love the opportunity to come up here and hang out with you guys. So that's why I'm here. And it's been one of the best um, um, poker trips I've been on, even though I haven't played a a hand of poker there's been some pretty good um, real opportunities here. <laughs> yes, I mean I'm I'm kind of in the same boat in that you know it was I think this is a long drive from it took me like ten ish hours with counting stops and stuff to drive down here from from Baltimore mm-hmm. and like this game is good but like it's not a particularly high stakes thing like I you know just from a pure EV perspective factoring in like the value of time and like getting a hotel room and that sort of thing like I don't think it would really make sense to do this trip so I mean it's kind of true in the same sense that like I'm here to see you and Briar and whoever else uh-huh. but like I'm still playing the tournament like I'm not- <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing like you know I think people kind of doubt me a little bit when I say this but I've had opportunities to play tournaments and just decided not to. Like, I could have played the main event this past year in the summer. Just wasn't feeling it. And I kind of did want to kind of, I wanted to walk into Cherokee to see if I would get bit by the bug again. And, like, as soon as I walked in, my skin started to crawl. (laughs) I was like, man, I don't want to deal with this live poker thing. And even watching you play, it's like I was talking to Briar about this, um, I enjoy the speed of online poker and I'm kind of getting annoyed with the speed of live poker and you kind of get it on at the very, very high GTO end. You get like the vocal same types who are just like ridiculously slow. And then on the very low end, you get the copycats of those guys who are at least like he's slow for a reason. (laughs) These guys are slow because they see, you know, people like him being slow. And then the good mid tier guys are faster but watching the games even that level is kind of like just just act just act <laughs> like five seconds takes five seconds watching watching you take five seconds to make a move uh is annoying versus compared to how fast i can you know get action online and plan multiple tables so um I really am not seeing the appeal of live poker anymore. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm cribbing this from somewhere on Twitter, and I, I have no recollection whatsoever of who I got it from. And I just disclaim this is my original observation. But you know, I think there's a lot of um, like hate that gets directed towards like tank, like people who will have like a particularly long tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there are some spots where it's like sort of unreasonable, where you know, like taking for four minutes before making a continuation bet or something like that, like spots yeah. that should be relatively routine. But I really think the bigger problem is not people who occasionally tank for a long time on a significant decision. Mm-hmm. The problem is people who tank for um, a relatively short amount of time on every preflop decision. Like if it takes you seven seconds to make a preflop decision, like that you make a lot of preflop decisions. Like yeah. that really adds up. <laughs> that that's true. And for me, um I've become more and more sensitive to like that number and my head has dropped over the years. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah so, I mean seven yeah, like three is too long. <laughs> yeah, three is too long for me now. <laughs> no, but it's funny because like when you're explaining this to a non poker person it doesn't sound at all unreasonable when you're like oh that person was making a decision for like several hundred dollars in equity and he wanted to take three seconds to think about it like that doesn't seem that bad (laughs) but like it's it's actually an eternity like it really for something that 
and again, like there are certain preflop decisions where you can take that long, but there's no like there's not even a need for balance. Like if you're gonna put money in the pot, there's at least an argument for if I'm gonna have to tank with some portion of my range, then I can't split my range by like letting you know that I have a hand I didn't need to tank with. Yes. But if you're going to fold anyway and you know you're gonna like if you look at do seven offsuit under the gun, you don't need to balance your tanking range here. Like you can just fold instantly preflop and it's perfectly fine that people have the information that you had a hand that was gonna fold instantly preflop because you folded. <laughs> yeah. And- Especially at a ten-handed table under the gun, you're gonna be folding like should probably ninety percent. You should be folding like ninety percent of the time. So you're really not giving away a ton if you do it pretty much immediately as soon as you see your second card. Yeah, and the other um, the other spot where I think people like rightfully get. Uh get criticized for is things that ought to be like where you should have already made up your mind what you were going to do you know like you three bet to six big blinds and someone shells for 22 big blinds like okay obviously they're going to have a shoving range and like they and many people like won't even flatten that situation like, right. they will only shove or fold in which case like you 100% should have made up your mind what you're going to do and I mean, you can take a little bit of time to try to pick up a read or something, but, like, there's no reason to be in the tank for three minutes in this situation. Like, this is something that you should be, should have planned on. That, and the other one that really gets me is, like, it's just, you know, a PSA for people listening. You're allowed to think at the same time that other people are thinking. (laughs) So if there's an all-in bet and the guy in front of you is thinking about what he wants to do, you also should be thinking about what you will do when it is on you rather than he folds and then you need to ask how much the bet is. And start your thinking from (laughs) square one. Like that's... (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to take times. Wait your turn to think. You don't have to do that. Yeah, 100% agree. I just enjoy online poker way more than live and um i found some relatively um some games for um relatively significant stakes online that are just as soft as some of the live tournaments and so i'm not missing much by that trade-off and so i'm just gonna do the thing that i most enjoy mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, really. I think that's uh, one of the things. And I mean, we talked about this um, earlier this this trip, but uh, that like appealed to me about you. In, like the first time that we met mm-hmm. was just like this guy's making decisions. In, in a good way, but also decisions that are like going against the stream, right? Where you know you're you're making decisions that make sense, at least for you. Even if it's like I'm sure there are some people listening to this who are like, "That's crazy! Why would you like travel to the circuit and then not play the circuit?" And you're a professional <laughs> poker player, <laughs> yeah. like, But like it is like I think it is clearly the right decision for you, and you're like capable of like I don't know if you don't experience the social like pressure or or the like fear of missing out kind of thing or if you're just like very good at, at tabling it i don't i don't feel it i i don't i mean sleeping in a van is also an example of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes like i don't have this fear of missing out in fact i have the exact opposite like when i hear things that are like good to the average person it scares me like for example if i hear a friend say Hey, I just bought a house. Congratulations on my new house. And my mom think like, damn, I'm glad I don't have to pay that mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel the same way about, you know, tournaments. It's like like when you were playing um, the the tournament yesterday and... um, You had a deep run and um, went out in like an above average spot on the bubble. And I'm thinking like, damn, I'm glad I didn't have to play this tournament all day 
to have that happen. And it happens so often when you play live. And the the when that doesn't happen, the other thing that happens a lot is you bust early, which is actually better. But um, there's certain tournaments that if you ask me if I would rather play this thing for, I don't know, 10, 12 hours, men cash and immediately bust, or bust in level one, I'd rather bust in level one. I'm sure, yeah. And so, uh, with that being the case, it doesn't make sense for me to play because one of those two things are going to happen more often than not. What I like about tournaments is final table in them. And if that's the only way I'm going to be happy is a final table of tournament, then I'll... I, yeah, playing thousand field tournaments is not the, yeah, <laughs> not the yeah. way to make final table. And, 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 and playing them one at a time. So this is what I'm right. changing. Yeah. I, I'm... I'm, I'm um, Giving up the opportunity to travel for hours to get to a place to play a thousand field tournament against people who are having uh, inappropriate conversation about. Uh, I have overheard some inappropriate. Like, <laughs> I, I, th- I think uh, the rural North Carolina is worse than average. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I was going. Uh, so like you know, I'm forced to you know be around these conversations that I don't want to be around. Had to travel a long way to do it, and I have to sit here one tabling with people who take every like seven to ten seconds on every decision, and I'm only gonna ha- be happy if I final table this thing versus sitting in the comfort of my own back seat <laughs> and uh, playing. Um, you know, six to eight tables at once of tournaments with 100 to 200 players. It's just, and the other thing about it is one of my favorite things about poker is studying it. And I play on Bovada where you get the whole cards after the tournament. And I love, it's like Christmas morning every time I download (laughs) that hand history to study the next day and you don't get that live unless you like you know record every hand and write a book that's the only way you can like you know study i basically get to the what you and nate experience from like recording your hands in, a, in the main event and studying it later i get to do that every single day well, and you get to see your opponent's cards i mean that's yes a, that's the part you're missing yes yeah. yes and yeah I, I i i enjoy that part of it way more than playing so yeah, this is this may not be the right decision for everybody, but it's definitely the right decision for me. I will say I feel like I've benefited from like I think one of the like meta things that I've picked up from poker is the like just getting comfortable with the idea that you're never going to know and you just have to be like satisfied even if you're not satisfied with your decision making process but just you know the the which you you actually do know on bavada like you get to see what your opponent's cards were right but even then you don't know what his range would have been so at best you just know like okay in this instance it turned out he actually was bluffing that still doesn't necessarily mean your fold was wrong right but you know there's so many situations i'm sure people listening can can relate to this where something happens you know you're Uh, typically it's that your opponent bets and you like agonize for a long time and fold Mm -hmm. and you're never going to have closure on this like once his cards are in the muck you're never going to have closure even if you ask him and he tells you what he had (laughs) you still a are going to have to wonder whether he's telling you the truth (laughs) and b like it's again there's the range Mm -hmm. problem and i think just like coming to grips with 
like I mean, which is really what poker is, is making decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Yes. And, you know, there's like a natural inclination to try to want to find certainty in the uncertain and say, okay, well, where's the firm footing? What can I like stand on? Right. And I do feel like, you know, game theory provides that a little bit, which is part of what I like about it. But Mm. I mean, I also just think like, if you want to play poker seriously, you just have to get comfortable, like walking without ground underneath of you that's what you're doing a lot of the time in fact when i'm doing when i do coaching that's one of the things i tell my students that that like overwhelming need to know that feeling that you need to know what the other guy had is a leak right yeah and so you have to just quit worrying about if you want a pot quit worrying about what he had or more importantly Quit worried about why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Just figure out the what. All you need to know is what he did, and then you can exploit him. You don't need to know why he did what he did. <laughs> you, you've probably seen this too, but there's like a whole genre of uh, questions that you get, even more, probably more so as, as like for the podcast than from coaching students. Uh-huh. Where I, I, I mean, I think to a large degree, these are like thinly veiled bad beat stories. <laughs> but like, you know, where, where there, there are like, they want you to analyze a hand from your opponent, from the opponent's perspective. And like, clearly the opponent like did something he shouldn't have done. And they're like, what they want you really is for you to tell them like, Oh yeah, that guy's an idiot. He never should have done that. Like that's obviously what they're like asking for, whether they admit it or not. Um, but I think like a little bit there probably like I think for people who are not as confident in their own poker skill, like there probably is some question of like, Oh, this other player, like maybe he is actually doing something like you know especially if you haven't been winning or whatever you're like well what am i doing wrong what are other people doing i saw that guy win a pot and what did he do he played king five offsuit <laughs> under the gun and he made a full house like yeah. should i be playing king five offsuit under the gun like i probably don't give enough credit to how much people you know don't have a lot of security in their own um like strategic approach to the game where like maybe they really are wondering i have that problem on a more macro level where I don't care about individual hands, but when I see people winning consistently in tournaments, I was just thinking about this doing today. things that I know aren't correct, that drives me insane. And I've kind of had to um, um, basically coach myself out of obsessing over that because there were um, a couple of um, um, times in the past where you know I'd be three, four months trying to figure out why that guy wins <laughs> based off of what I see him doing. But on a, I'm not the guy that, like, you know, folds a hand and then, like, you know, ah, oh, I would have flopped two pair. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't feel it on that macro level, but there's a lot of guys in poker with a lot more results than me that the, the, my ego wants to tell me I know him better than that guy, mm-hmm. but then... And there may be some truth to that, but there's also a big possibility that I just don't understand what he's doing. Well, and, and the more truth there is to that, the more that you're like, certain things he's doing are just like objectively, demonstrably bad and wrong. Yes. All that then is like, all the more like, well, what is he doing to like overcome that? And like, he has leaks that I don't have. Yet his results are better than mine. So, yes. like, whatever his secret sauce is must be really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm always trying to find that out, but. You know, I'm I'm starting to like you know not worry about it and just stay in my own lane. Um, that's why I call my coaching mediocre poker coaching. I'm not gonna be that good of a player. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to be the best player on the planet because I know what type of work that requires. And 
you know, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> so uh, I got into poker to not have to work hard, <laughs> you know, so I'll work enough to like, you know, um, fill up the gas tank tank, which now only requires twenty dollars. <laughs> well it used to be like forty, forty five. So now I'm gonna work even less. <laughs> but I'm enjoying it, man. I, I feel a lot of freedom with this um new approach to just uh, play the easiest games and not glory chase. Mm. The the thing that I was thinking about today that's I think very closely related to what we're talking about, but a little bit different is when you see someone who is clearly like good at poker, mm. and you know I don't know who they are. I've never seen them before, so it's not like I know that they're like a long term crusher or something. Mm. But they're clearly like a good player, and they're doing well today. Yes, right. So like there was a guy at my table who I considered the best of, of the people who was at my, my table today in the in the main event, and uh, I had like half a starting stack, and he had three starting stacks. Right, and he was playing pretty differently from how I was. Like he was involved in a lot more pots than I was. Mm-hmm. And it's tempting to conclude from that, especially if you don't have a lot of confidence in your own strategy. You're like, well, that guy is he clearly knows what he's doing. Like, he's a, he's a good player. He's playing very differently than I am, and he's getting much better results. So the way he's playing must be much better than the way I'm playing. And even if it's better than the way you're playing, it's probably not much. But like, there's still there's so much variance wrapped up in short-term results that like you definitely shouldn't try to on the fly say like, oh, that guy has figured out a really good like. So like the the concern in the back of my head was, is what this guy is doing just like super successful because some of the players in this tournament are like really really weak and it's just like it's so good for him to that he can just like deviate wildly from what would other but like no probably he's just like catching. A a lot more cards than I am, and that's right. like a big part of the reason he's in more pots is that he's getting dealt better preflop starting hands than I yes. am. Like that's the more likely explanation. Like when you're just looking at a single tournament's worth of results, you know, there, there's so much noise involved that you shouldn't be trying too hard to derive a signal. Like I, I said, like calling an, aud- an audible, I think was the the uh, metaphor that you were using earlier. Yes. But I think like trying to change up things mid mid game like that, just looking at something like, oh, that guy's what he's doing is working, and what I'm doing isn't working. So maybe I'll just start doing what he's doing you don't even know what he's doing (laughs) right you don't know what he's doing and even if like you can see that he's playing a lot more hands so that's just like surface level and when you try to copy that you don't really know all the factors that go into his decision making so if you don't have that type of experience you will make mistakes trying to copy that style and i kind of ran into that about a year year and a half ago uh, I guess it's been like two years now. I started getting coaching from Ryan LaPlante, who does play a lot of hands. And he coached me to play a lot more hands than I'm used to, which put me in awkward spots that I couldn't, you know, work my way out of like he could. And so I ended up, you know, um, having some growing pains from that. And I've gotten a little bit better with it. But, you know, after I kind of brought that issue to him, he kind of like, you know, backed up a little bit and like tightened my ranges up more slightly more um tighter than he plays but still infinitely looser than i played before you know i started getting coached with him and that was more of a sweet spot Mm -hmm. and so as i get comfortable with these ranges then i can you know slowly branch out closer to where he is and i think it was just too far outside of my comfort zone initially and I couldn't imagine, and this is with coaching. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine just being a nit 
and you see a maniac at a table with a lot of chips and decide I'm gonna be a maniac now. Yeah. Like right then and there, you're definitely gonna like set a stack on fire. No, I do the same thing with you know, some of my coaching students who really don't have a theoretical background in the game at all. You know, will sometimes come in and they have the idea in their head of like only playing good cards, mm-hmm. right? Like some people start from that baseline and so they're not really changing their range much from position. Mm-hmm. And so to talk to somebody and say, you know, like you could come out and say like in theory you should be or like poker snowy would play 40 percent of its hands on the button you're currently playing 15 right so i mean i can use those numbers to, to kind of like the shock value of them to say like look there's like there's a big gap between what you're doing and what is like theoretically correct yes but generally like i'm not gonna tell those people like go out and instantly start playing a 40 percent range on the button you know i'm gonna say like expand like widen it from what you're doing now baby steps exactly and you'll like it's not something that you'll need to force like you'll just start to feel it where you're like oh okay i have the button and i can see what especially when we're talking about doing exploitive things where it's like against the right blinds you could be playing 70 80 100 percent of hands um and so you'll like once you get to the point where you, you kind of understand why you should be playing more hands on the button and you feel the value of doing that then you just start to see, like, oh, okay, I, I see what these players are going to do wrong. I can see why, like, maybe I should open Jack-3 suited here on the button. And, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, like, mental barriers to overcome there. I think some of them are just you don't mind losing a big pot when you have aces. Or it comes back to the certainty thing again. Where, like, right. if you lose a big pot with aces, you can at least say to yourself, like, well, I had aces. Like, how big of a mistake could it have been? When you lose a big pot with jack-3 suited, <laughs> it's easy to be like, oh, you idiot. What were you even doing in there with jack-3 suited yeah. in the first place? Yeah. So I think, like, when you have those confidence issues, it's harder to do something that where, where you are, like, knowingly stepping out into the unknown mm-hmm. because um, it's going to, like, if you do have that leak of, of, like, doubting yourself or needing certainty, it's gonna rear its head a lot more often definitely 100 percent let me uh pause here for a second to uh promote tournament poker edge which we're both wearing our matching uh tournament yes. poker edge hoodies right now <laughs> uh but yeah so you know that it, among other things it, it's how we met each other or you know how, how we became aware of each other's existence was through tournament poker edge and it's really one of the uh big boons of tournament poker edge is the community that exists there and uh you know getting feedback on on the forums and i mean having opportunities to you know like the meetup in uh, las vegas for instance over the um over the summer and a lot of the people on there are like streaming for instance uh, killing bird is uh, active streaming on on twitch and some of the other folks on there as well we've had a lot of them as guests here on the uh, podcast and just an excellent all-around resource for well tournament poker so if you're interested in having an edge in tournament poker tournamentpokeredge.com it's in the name <laughs> that should be their slogan yeah <laughs> just aggressively shouted like yeah. that it's in the name <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, you, you referenced earlier uh, my like bubbling the, or not quite bubbling, but like pseudo bubbling mm. the, um, the, is it still called the high roller? No, I don't it's think not. It is, it, I mean, it is a lower buy in than the main event, so it's not really. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's a 11.25 buy in that used to be called a high roller, but now it's just an 11.25. The tournament formerly known as the high roller. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's like, yeah, I mean, it is, I, I would consider like worst place to, to, 
play all day like as someone who plays primarily for profit rather than primarily for fun like i think this is a big difference between recreational players where like recreational players i mean obviously they want to make money but like they also just want to play poker and so like getting to play more hands is, is like kind of a win if you're playing for fun right um so like i mean i do kind of consider it worst place to play like about as long as you can play without cashing yes <laughs> and and not cash and then you know to have it it happened in kind of a frustrating way we were like card dead for a while and then like you finally get a good hand and someone has a slightly better one and you know like there's there's a lot of frustration that's that's wrapped up in that and even when you've been doing this for a long time you still experience some of that but i really did also have the experience but even before i i busted of like because you know there's maybe seven tables left and like four and a half are going to get paid mm-hmm. and uh i i just i didn't even know that you were doing this but I, I just saw you out there like walking between the the rows and i was like oh carlos is like walking around like it's looking where the short stacks are and like trying to get a sense of like what uh what short stack. and it was just like it was a reminder of why i came down here it was like <laughs> yeah oh this is like to just like to get the full carlos experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah and people don't understand like I'd much rather be doing that than be sitting at the table sweating the bubble myself. Right, which is essential for my enjoyment of it. Like, I would feel... Like, it's not really a great use of your time if you would... If you're not enjoying it, like it's not something that I would really ask you to do or expect you to do, and I would feel bad if you were doing it in some out of some sense of an obligation or like whatever. Right. Like I wouldn't feel good about that. So like it's essential to it is knowing that like this is what you want to be doing anyway. Yeah, and I, I've 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 been on the other end of that where I was uh, on the bubble and having some friends kind of rail me. And uh, I can tell they were not enjoying the um, work portion of it. And I was like, <laughs> how many short stacks are there? I'm like sitting like angry DMs, like count the short stacks. I, I would like, be like afraid to caddy for you. <laughs> yeah. like, you're such a good poker caddy. That you're, I feel like you just be like aware of all the, like, I'd be doing this right now. Why yeah, aren't yeah. you doing that? <laughs> yeah. I was like, anything better, anything is better than clapping every time I drag a pot. That's not what I need you to be doing on the rail right now. <laughs> but... Um, it's fun, man. I, I enjoy I enjoy playing online and having the ability to just look in the lobby and see how many short stacks there are. And you can't do that live. And having the ability to get that same information is like such an edge um, for the player on the players who don't have it. It's just like even though the profits that come from that aren't mine they go to the player that's actually playing it feels good in my to me to like help someone like pick up loose dollars <laughs> like there's money here that nobody else seems to want and so like you know i'll help you scoop them up it's like <laughs> it, it's almost like if you drop money out of your pocket and kept walking and didn't pick it up it would drive me crazy right, yeah. so i would want to help you pick it up and that's kind of <laughs> how i feel when i'm on um, poker caddying yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of the like knit compulsiveness there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Just like bothering you in an existential sense to see. Yeah, man. There's so many uh, um, uncommon uh, things in poker that are leaks in my mind that other people don't view as leaks. Um, so yeah, like not being aware of all the information you need to make correct. ICM decisions is a big one, and that happens more so live than um, online. Yeah, I, so I will say, um, I mean, I, I kind of share 
I, I, I'm of two minds on the issue of like how annoying are live players, right? Like mm-hmm. I know that's like part of what you don't enjoy. You, you enjoy the the psychosis of a lot of these people. More than <laughs> that's I a good do. way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 way I've put it to some people is like I um I appreciate that these people exist. I think that poker does create a space for some people who need space to be a certain kind of person in, in a certain kind of way, and I think the poker table is like one of the places where they can do that. Um, I'm, you know, even if I kind of like like them in a broad sense, uh, which isn't even always the case, but uh-huh. even, even when I do, they're not necessarily people that I am, you know, would want to be like friends with per se, or like yes. hang out with away from the poker table. But I do, um, I do find it interesting <laughs> to be around them. And I do think there's a kind of, I mean, there, there's just diversity in the much weaker sense of like racial and age and whatever else. But I think even more than that, there's diversity in terms of just like seeing the types of people that exist in though just like interacting with different types of people, even if they are like roughly like demographically the same as me, they're just like their brains are working in very different ways and they have very different ideas about like how one ought to be. <laughs> you know what it is like as you've matured and you have a, a different sense of uh, morality um, you've gotten to the point where you don't enjoy um, zoos like maybe you would have as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can enjoy a poker tournament, which is basically like a human zoo. <laughs> <laughs> so you can enjoy that, like, you know, looking at, okay, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people do at poker tables that's not too much different than like a chimp slinging crap. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can enjoy watching that kind of train wreck without, you know, the the moral part of it that you feel when you watch animals at a zoo. Yeah, it, it's an interesting like psychological experiment of you know you put people in these like high pressure situations, and uh, I mean I think this is a, this is a, a Tommy Angeloism. Uh, like poker is essentially a machine for creating pain. Like if you mm, just I wanted like to kind of like design, <laughs> you know, it's like you you wrap like there's a lot of ego wrapped up in it and that causes mm-hmm. people pain and then there's money and that definitely causes people <laughs> pain and you, especially poker tournaments you're creating a situation where like losing is the overwhelmingly likely outcome even winning feels like losing like yes. you don't get first place um whereas it's like almost everyone like you're just you're really signing up for for pain and i think it is like it's a good training ground I mean, like i think that's true that you like learning to cope with it through tournament poker or poker in general like build some resilience for coping with it in other scenarios but also the zoo aspect of just seeing like how are you how are all you other humans dealing with it <laughs> yeah oh, not well okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's a really good analogy um but I, I do feel like there's a different sort of um person so this is not a region of the country where I've played poker mm-hmm. before, and I mean, there's not really a lot of poker in this region, which is part of why this such is such a big stop. Which like, there's so many big metro areas where this is the closest uh, tournament, or, you know, tournament poker venue. Certainly for to play like a tournament of this size. Yes, in many cases, even to play legal poker at all. Exactly. This is like the close for Atlanta, Charlotte. I don't even know where, like like whole states, man. <laughs> Georgia. There's no casinos or like card rooms legally in Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina. Well, we're in North Carolina. Yeah, but this so. is the only one. Yes. Um, Tennessee. 
Tennessee, South Carolina, I think. Um, I'm missing one. There's another one in there. Kentucky? I don't know if they have one. but yeah, I don't um, think they have casinos. Yeah, so there's pretty much if you're playing poker in the South, there's Florida. Mm. And uh, I like think Biloxi. Mississippi. So <laughs> Biloxi's Mississippi. And I don't even know if they have... Um, anything in texas which is why choctaw in oklahoma i think is um like a big draw there so anytime you have a big um area um where there's only one game in town that thing is going to be massive and mm-hmm. and cherokee is always uh one of if not the biggest circuit stop every year well i get part of the i i just i like it's a um there's different types of people here than I think I've encountered other places where I've played poker. I mean, and this is That's like true. not even the, the like best example of it, but one thing that I find interesting is just like different ways that people talk. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing, like that's a form of diversity that we're definitely losing in, in the world. Like as media becomes more like globalized, like certainly mm-hmm. within the United States, there's much less like regional dialect than there used to be. And like what we, I mean, we still have a sense of what like a Southern accent or a Boston accent or something like that sounds like, but really it's like mostly older people who have those accents. Right. Like y- even younger people like born in Boston don't really have like strong Boston accents for the most part. I, I think that's maybe a little less true in the South, but you know, like it's, um, you just, people talk differently here than, than they do other places. And I really enjoy that. And like, I'm sometimes reluctant, like people have sometimes responded badly on Twitter when I've tried to like <laughs> transcribe or transliterate things. Like, especially if there's a, like you a, do a good job with the, Bal- with the Baltimore accent. Yeah. Well, I'm more, but that's like my local one. I, okay. I think it gets a little dicier when I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, Chinglish or yeah, yeah. like African-American English. Like I think there's, it, it's definitely like potentially stepping into some like right. nuclear territory, but yeah. like, I don't like it's i don't think it's a patronizing interest that i have like i just find it genuinely interesting like different ways that, that people talk and i do like the the way this guy he was talking about a, a dog that he had that was for hunting hogs mm-hmm. but the way he said hog like I, i'm not even sure i can reproduce like hogs yeah like it was hogs. so i yeah. just uh, there was so much like meat on the bone <laughs> how they said it like I, <laughs> yeah i can remember um subbing up in portland and a lot of the kids would um um, laugh about certain ways I said things, um, and I would always tell them. But I think they probably knew right away that I wasn't from Portland. <laughs> but eventually, I would I would mention that. But I remember one kid was dying because I used the word "schlep" and the way I said it. Uh, I know I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, That's but I think it should be "slept." Oh, okay. I thought you, you thought were it was a, a different word. I thought you said a different word entirely. <laughs> but the way you the word is "slept." But I was saying schlep. <laughs> yeah, schlep to me means to like drag or like carry something heavy. Like I, I schlepped the suitcase yeah. all the way up from the lobby. Like no, that's... I might have been telling the kid, you know, I slept in my car last night. <laughs> <laughs> and he was dying laughing at that. And then when he was laughing, and I, I couldn't figure out why he was laughing. Then when he told me why, I was like, then I slowed down. I was like, yeah, I am saying it wrong. Or not. But um, it's um, you. a lot of times you don't realize it until someone who doesn't use that same dialect kind of points it out so i don't take offense to that that type of stuff like i enjoy languages and different um um, accents accents also what did surprise me today you know you said something about you didn't expect to find a a un conference when you (laughs) you came to rural north carolina so i had um 
an Israeli, a Palestinian, and a Bosnian <laughs> at my table. And, like, I'm generally... Like, I mean, I don't really go out of my way to, like... Like, I don't really mind when politics comes up. The t- I'm not a real strong, like, no talking politics at the table. But, like, uh-huh. Israel-Palestine was definitely... <laughs> I was, like... Was, I was uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. And I was I was joking and saying that, um, yeah, you didn't expect to see that when you came to North Carolina. But, yeah. there And that kind of goes with what you were saying about just the... Um, the uh, mixtures of different type of people that come here because of the every everybody has to be here from the all the um, surrounding metros. I feel like we should talk about a hand. I'm trying to think. Um, you don't happen to remember like one that I told you that you thought was interesting, do you? Um, the nine seven suited, maybe nine seven hearts. Uh, that's not a good one. Uh, I don't come off well on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. We, can talk. We, we should talk about that one. Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. Um. How, about, how about the Jack 4? Jack 4. Um, oh. The, um, where you, you lost a big pot in the tournament today, um, Button versus Big Blind. Oh yeah. I don't know which one would be better. No, yeah, let's do the nine seven. Okay. Yeah, I think the Jack Four is actually kind of straightforward. Yeah. Um, which is why I didn't remember it. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this this was like the hand that uh, I mean I, it was a long time before I actually bubbled in the in the like formerly known as high roller tournament mm-hmm. yesterday. But like this is and I think the reason that I bubbled like I had a well above average stack and then I I lost this pot and I think it's actually well I love it. Give the head details. Um, so under the gun opens. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the pot size on the flop. I don't exactly remember the, the preflop, but it's pretty standard. Yeah, under the gun opens. It folds to me in the big blind. I have nine seven suited. A trivial call. Like I mm-hmm. would never do anything other than call. Um, I, I call with nine seven of hearts, and the flop is king queen jack. There's about sixteen k in the pot. And probably 100, 110K in the effective stacks. Okay. So we're looking at stack to pot ratio seven ish. Mm-hmm. Um, King, Queen, Jack with two hearts is the flop. And I have nine, seven of hearts. So right away, this is a sort of like. I mean, we often talk broadly about how to play big draws, mm-hmm. which like this is a flush draw plus a gut shot. Right. But it's really important sometimes to distinguish. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's significant. It's not that significant that my flush draw isn't to the nuts. Like you know, a flush is, is going to be a good hand regardless. A gut shot where you're making a straight on king queen jack ten against an under the gun raiser, <laughs> and your straight is with a nine is of like pretty limited value. Like yes. there's that's it's really. Um, I mean, it, it gets it's, you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's just not new. even if it doesn't get you in trouble. Like. I mean, so I, I, I don't want to call it reverse implied odds in the sense of, like, it's actively bad for you to make the straight. I don't mm. think that's true. Mm. But it is much less good than making a straight in pretty much any other situation. Right. <laughs> like, if you're going to make a straight, that's, like, one of the worst times to do it. Yes. Um, one of the worst ways to do it. So I think it's, it's easy to, like, overvalue your hand if you just say, like, oh, I have... Uh, flush draw plus gut shot. I always play those aggressively. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I want to say off the bat, like that's not what was what was happening mm-hmm. here exactly. Um, I checked, and this player bet five k into sixteen k, and I do think this is like a reasonable enough check raising candidate that 
you know, I'm not, even though it's, it's like kind of unideal for the reasons I just gave, I'm not going to take check raising completely off the, off the table. And I thought that the 5k and the 16k on, on a board like the King Queen Jack, uh, with a flush draw. And this was, I mean, he wasn't a bad player, but he was definitely not a professional player. Right. And my broad expectation is that people tend to worry too much about getting drawn out on, in these kinds of boards. Right. So I think if he, even if he slops something as strong as like two pair or a set, I still think there's a decent chance he would be, you know, sufficiently concerned about the straight and flush draw possibilities that he would want to bet more than 5k. Yes. So my first inclination was to think there's very few hands he could have that would be so strong that he wouldn't worry, which is not really the way you should do your bet sizing, but I think it's how many recreational players do their bet sizing is based mm. on like, what are they worried about happening? And there's, it's very hard for him hand so strong that he wouldn't really be worried about what's going to happen next. I think like ace 10 would be the best candidate for that, which, you know, he, he, I think there's a fair chance he's not opening ace 10 offsuit under the gun nine handed. Um, I, I think he probably should be, but I think a lot of recreational players don't. So that's um, a limp. That's a limp in Cherokee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it may or may not be in his range. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I do have a blocker to ten nine for whatever that's worth. Um, so I thought you know, I, I think I'll have decent equity against the calling range, and I think that he is kind of unlikely to be nutted here, given the bet sizing was mm-hmm. kind of the logic behind. This. So I check raised to fifteen k, and he called. So now we have forty six k in the pot. And the turn pairs the jack. So the board is king, queen, jack, jack with two hearts. And I have nine, seven of hearts. I'm curious what your what your thoughts is. I was not really clear on, on what my play should be in this spot. This hand is very similar to one that um, um, Briar and I discussed from the day before. And I don't remember all the details of his. But it was a spot where he check raised out of the big blind with a um, backdoor draw, and I think it, I think it was a backdoor flush draw. It could have just been—I'm sorry—it could have been a flush draw or just a backdoor flush draw. But he check raised out of the big blind, and the turn pair the um, low card on the board. Now, generally, when you are um, defending from the big blind. And that card pairs, that's a good card for your range. And it's a card that you should often lead on. But that's more so the case when you call the flop bet. Um, where Whereas when you check raise, it's almost like now you're the aggressor. And so there's fewer hands that you have containing that bottom card that you're going to want to um that you can rep when you check raise the flop and so this long-winded way of saying that had i check call flop this is a card i would lead on a ton but given that we check raise i don't know i don't think this card is um as good for the hands we're repping and so i check turn here yeah i think there's good analysis there um the the one thing I'll say is I like to make my decisions like I, I like my cards to matter in my decision. So like you, you essentially what you've said there is a reason why we don't want to have a very high bluffing frequency. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean our bluffing frequency is zero. Yes. Um, and so I think there's still the question, even if we say like the default is going to be, you know, give up a lot. 
there's still a question of is this hand an exception? Like, is this the hand that that we should bet with? Um, but I, I'm inclined to think the answer is no, and that's in part because that pair on the board really reduces the value of our draws. And the larger the pot gets, both of our ranges get stronger. Mm-hmm. Which means, you know, if, if you imagine like if I do bet again here on the turn, it's the semi bluff, and then I river a flush. Right, the value of making that flush has gone down because first full houses and bigger flush draws are looming larger in the opponent's range because he has more incentive to fold weaker hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I am gonna, my hand is not going to be the best hand as often. Like, the, the stronger that I make his range, the less likely it is that I have the best hand when a flush card comes. Right. Uh, and then this, the secondary problem is even if I do have the best hand, because other hands in my range have also gotten stronger now because I can have full houses, he has less incentive to pay me off with a hand worse than mine. So even if I do make a flush and have the best hand, the value of it is still reduced because it's going to be harder for me to get a value bet paid off because, like, what can he call me with? You know? Yeah. Um, That's kind of sick. In a way, if you lead turn and then you hit your flush on the river, I don't know if it's a good hand to be value. Is it a yeah. bluff or a value bet now? Exactly. It's kind of like merged into, I don't know what. Right. And that's, you just don't want to end up in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I think like the triple range merge is yeah. like being some like really advanced play, but like, actually I think this just means you fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this meant, I've never understood what that phrase meant, but this might actually be it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- this is a concept that I, I kind of like tried to emphasize uh, my, my turn in Poker Edge series that I made about the, the main event where I kind of did like a hand-for-hand review. Like one of the concepts that I really hammered on there was thinking ahead to is this a hand that I want to build the pot with? Yes. And usually the question, you're, like, you're thinking in terms of nuttiness, not necessarily the literal nuts, but just like if I make... Like, how likely is it that this hand is going to be a hand that I can feel very good about by the time we get to the river? Right. And, you know, when you have even a backdoor nut flush draw on the flop, that's a hand that does have potential to turn into a hand that you might feel really good about. Whereas, you know, like in this instance, like you have 9-7 suited on a board that's already paired. Like, you're not, like you can't really feel that good about it. And the bigger the pot gets, the less good you're going to feel about it. So I think you're, you're kind of... Um, it's not a great idea to build the pot. Like you want to be drawing to a hand when you're semi bluffing, where if it gets there, you can bet it for value. You don't want to like semi bluff, get there, and then just have a bluff catcher. Like that's yeah. <laughs> that's not really um, or or a value hand up against what, what like you don't want him to fold all his marginal bluff catches um, before you get there, and so that once you do get there, all he has left is. Hands stronger than yours. Yeah, that's what I mean by bluff catcher. Like, oh, okay, gotcha. If it's just you know that you're gonna hope, uh, like all you can do, even even when you get like the best possible river card, mm-hmm. you're still just sort of like, I hope my hand is good. Yeah, like that's not a good spot to be. I mean, it's the same reason why you don't want to call an under the gun raise with like king ten offsuit because yeah. even if you get the, I mean, not quite best possible flop, but like best likely flop of like a king or a ten high flop, you still can't really play your hand that strongly. It's it's the same principle. I think people are familiar with it pre-flop, and they're less accustomed to thinking of it after the flop. But I think, and I think, like when you're playing shallow, you don't really have to worry about it because you just get all in. But right. in games where like you're still going to have to 
play the turn and play the river, how nutty your hand is when you're playing the turn and playing the river are important yeah. considerations. And your decisions about what to build the pot with on early streets should be taken into consideration. Like, how well is my hand going to play on turns and rivers? You know, given the information I already have about the board texture. Like, if I, you know, if my hand does improve to a flush, am I going to be able to play it strongly? Or if I, if I make a pair, am I going to be able to play it strongly? Right. Is this the concept of uh, visibility? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I checked, which I think is also a reasonable way to play full houses. Like I, it's not like I'm capping my range by by checking here. Like mm-hmm. I can I can definitely check with a full house you know, since I'm not really concerned about getting drawn out on. And some of my full houses are going to have a pretty strong you know blocking effect in terms of my opponent's ability to pay me off when I when I make them. I think it would not be unreasonable to check a full house in this situation either. Right. Uh, so we go check check on the turn and the river the just a blank, you know, an offsuit six or something that, you know, really had no no influence on the strategy of the hand. This is where I think I made like I think all my play up to this point has been debatable other than pre flop. Like mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not saying this is like a really well played hand on the flop. <laughs> but the river I think is a big mistake. Um I so I, I bet thirty K and uh, into a pot of like forty six mm-hmm. and he called with King Queen. And the reason I think it's a big mistake it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we put this into a solver if this is a hand that's like indifferent to bluffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll come back in a second to that. But the main reason I think it's a big mistake is just like in a tournament where you know 100k is an above average stack, risking 30k in a low edge kind of spot. Like if it is break even at equilibrium, then you're not making like it's not a real high value bluff. Even if it's like slightly plus EV, if this guy's gonna like overfold a little bit, for instance, or if this is the hand that's not quite break even at equilibrium, it's mm. slightly profitable at equilibrium. You know, you want more than a slight profit when you're putting uh, a, a starting stat or you know and they, like a, a third of a this is probably half an average stack. Like when you're putting yeah. half an average stack at risk, you want more than a small edge. And you know, it's similar to like taking a flip preflop or whatever. Yes. Right? It's just the same same kind of thing where the the forty six like I mean, winning forty six K is good, don't get me wrong. But when you already have a hundred, when you already have like a well above average stack, adding another forty six to your stack isn't doing that much for you. You're certainly not increasing the value of your stack by fifty percent when you increase your chips by fifty percent. Right. But the opposite is you the the opposite is like losing thirty K really hurts you. Right, the 30k that I'm risking might actually be worth as much as the 46 that I could potentially win. So even if, it, like in chip terms, it, it works out to where there's like positive chip EV, when you do the conversion into dollars, since this is a tournament, you know, and we think about what is a 70k stack worth versus what is a 150k stack worth, uh, or you know, a 60k, whatever I'm left with mm. after I lose this pot. Um, it's just. It's just not what you want to be doing in tournaments. And that spread tends to get even more dramatic as you approach the bubble. Yeah, and I felt that immediately after the hand was over because all of a sudden now I'm I'm handcuffed. Yes. Um, I can't. Well, I can't do a few. I mean, first I have to play a little bit tighter, even though we're not we're not like on the bubble per se. Mm-hmm. There's still like, you know, I have a stack now where I have to think about whether I'm going to make the money at all. And there are some marginal spots that I can't justify taking anymore. And like, I'm sort of forced to pass up what would otherwise be plus AV spots in order to um, 
minimize my chances of bubbling. Like, right. That's just like correct from a, you know, and I mean, people try to simplify this to just like, should I play to win or play to cash? And, like, <laughs> it's not, it's not that straightforward. It's not like I'm folding Kings pre-flop with yeah. like 30 players off the bubble. I'm just saying like, there are certain margins, like, you know, I, I'm probably not opening ace 10 offsuit under the gun where I would at a different stage of the tournament, or even if I had a bigger stack at this stage of the tournament. So like there is potentially EV there, but I can't access it because of my like need to be risk averse. Yeah, for sure. And especially when you, because you lost that hand, you gave up your ability to be, if not chip leader, close to the chip leader at the table, which that type of stack has a lot of gravity on the bubble. Whereas when you're when you're a medium stack, you know, you're kind of, you know, a victim of the big stack's <laughs> gravity. And um, yeah, that's. Yeah, giving up that chunk gives up a lot of future opportunities when that that are just around the corner. Exactly. Yeah, and I I just it, it was a, a problem of like not seeing the forest for the trees. Like I was I was sort of so focused on you know finding my bluffs in this situation. I wasn't doing the big picture thinking of. You know, do you even want to be bluffing? Like, I think yeah, I think there's yeah. a fair chance I should just never bluff in this spot. Yeah, like, I, I think that's that's probably like I don't think there's any hand I should bet 30k with on the river. And you know what? This is such a good hand to discuss because I, I guarantee you that what you just said is a symptom of the majority of your play is cash game play, mm -hmm. and so you're more focused on like you know. Um, like you said, finding bluffs and spots where it's hard to find and less uh, like if you're not like this mistake probably doesn't happen later in the summer where you've been getting a lot of tournament reps. Yeah. And like like just being able to manage that whole like life cycle of a tournament kind of is muscle memory. And if you've been thinking more so about cash game, finding bluffs, um, uh, um, and not more about managing your stack as you approach the bubble. Uh, it, it's easy to make this mistake. Yeah, that, that's a really good way of putting it. And I, I think that was kind of the, the situation. And part of why, you know, when I was playing tournaments more intensely this summer, I made the decision. Like I just, I didn't play cash at all. Also, like, I didn't try to jump back and forth between them. And um, I do think that there's actually more of a liability to doing that than than I used to appreciate anyway, but probably more than a lot of people appreciate where just like the mentality that you want to have in tournaments is often pretty, especially like deep stacked cash games because you're rarely that deep in tournaments. Right. So like I just, and it, I guess muscle memory really is what it is, but you know, there's times like there's certain flops that I'll see where when you're 300 big blinds deep, you see that flop and you're like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And like the ding, ding, ding is like, <laughs> this is going to be a great spot to run like a huge bluff with the cards that I have. Like I have a blocker to like middle set and like blocker to potential like straights and flushes that might run out. Like this is going to be a really great bluffing opportunity. And then like when you're 30 big blinds, none of that matters. Like, <laughs> this is not ding, ding, ding. This is like a hand you probably shouldn't have even played pre-flop. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of um, earlier we had a friend that was... Um, asking about um, um, strategy advice and um, Andrew's advice was um, to um, slightly widen your four and six bet ranges and I joke <laughs> what's the six bet <laughs> because that's something that as a tournament player rarely enters my, my my mind because like Andrew said you know that's something that comes up when you're playing a lot deeper than 30 big blinds and that's where the majority of my play is so 
Uh, to be clear, I don't do a lot of six betting in cash. It doesn't come up that much in cash either. And this was in a tournament. This was like in level two of the tournament. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yes, yeah, you, you are right about yeah. that. The other thing I want to point out that I'm um, impressed with, but not surprised coming from you, is immediately discussing this hand. You identified it as this is the spot where you missed the opportunity to get into the money. Um, because when I'm coaching, a lot of my students will come to me and say like, oh, I almost cashed, but ran 10 in, 10s in the jacks. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, that hand isn't the one that cost you. Yeah. It's like, usually like that hand is like super standard. And so if you lost, if you physically lost your last chip on a hand that was super standard, then you probably screwed up like a level or two before that. And that's where you can like find something that uh, you can build on. Like you can't play tens versus jacks any better from a stack of that size. But maybe that nine seven suited hand from two or three levels ago, you that's where you can um um play better. So um but that's probably one of the biggest lessons I'm teaching people is to like don't focus on like the T V hand. The T V hand plays itself. Mm-hmm. There's something that happened that they it's not it either didn't go to showdown or it's not interesting enough for like the ESPN cameras. Like that's where the meat of a poker tournament is yeah or it's not one hand which i think i mean yes, you, you, you were kind of getting at this but um it, it, and poker is really deceptive this way because you have like certain really dramatic spots where you might win or lose a really big pot mm-hmm. and i mean obviously it's like it's important to play well in in big pots or you don't want to have a leak of just like freezing up in big pots or like not playing well in big pots but oftentimes like as you said the result of a big pot is predetermined by right. the cards and just like a lot of money is going to go in and i mean there's a skill in like losing a little bit less in those situations than someone else would have or winning a little bit more in those situations than someone else would have but they don't come up that often either compared to how frequently like defending your big blind comes up or yeah. how frequently you know playing the button versus the cutoff open comes up and there's a lot of things there where it's never it's not going to be dramatic like you're not going to look back over a tournament and be like oh the reason i lost is that i you know overfolded my my big blind or you know i didn't check raise enough c bets um but that might be the reason you lost like death of a thousand cuts yeah um, or just like I mean, you are going to lose a lot of poker tournaments. Like there doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be a reason. Like the reason you lost is that it's a poker tournament. Nine hundred ninety-nine of the thousand people lost. Like, yes, you were just and one of them. This is why you need to be in a position to play six to eight of them at one time. Which is why I love online poker. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting listening to to. Um, Two older guys with like strong North Carolina accents discussing online poker amongst <laughs> themselves. Like that was a, it was a like just getting back to like getting to experience the human zoo and like seeing some animals that I don't see other yes. other places. Just like that, one of them had like never played online poker and like had just it was just like oh online I never mess with all that online stuff <laughs> you know and the um, the the other guy 
had like clearly had been really into it when it was available in the US and like was checked out since then. Yeah. So like everything he was talking about was like 10 years old. <laughs> he was like, there was this guy, Isildur, I think was his name, something like that. Yeah. And you know, and he's like, he was in like 10 of the biggest pots that had ever been played. He was in all 10 of them. And you have this like all like, he was just sort of like recanting the like major poker stories of like 2010. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's like a different universe for a lot of people man yeah like think of how much they've missed like it's crazy I, i'm out of touch with it now even you know it's been a little over a year since i played on poker stars but even then like i was you know i was playing like once a year on on w coop and uh i don't think i fully appreciate like what is happening right now in online poker, like at the high end, you know, like the high stakes online poker games, like who the people are who are winning in those games. Yeah. Like there's a lot that I don't know. Like the way we're sitting here talking about these live guys in North Carolina, there's probably some Europeans sitting around making a podcast talking about us about that. Oh, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> no, like American pros are definitely like the laughing stock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's all a food chain. It just depends on what part of it you're in. No, I mean, this is one of the great things about uh, getting to spend summers with Dara Carney, who, yeah. who is a European pro uh, and, like, is still, like, competitive in online poker and, like, on the European scene and, like, friends with a lot of, uh, you know, big winners in, in the online poker world is just getting that window into... And just, I mean, I'm, we're not saying anywhere near all of it, but just having, like, some connection to what's going on and sort of, like what's being taken for granted what's being laughed about like what this, the, there's there's like subtext to it also it's it's not just you know what, what's what's happening but sort of like what's uh being taken for granted i guess is the best way i can think of it but just that like that american pros are a joke is like it's just the truth i mean yes <laughs> yes which is a bummer i mean it's crazy to think and it really is just like what happened when we lost access to online poker in in the u.s or else it would be americans um i mean probably forming the same sorts of cabals that are getting formed now by, by people of other nations but um the, you know it, it used to be exactly the opposite right when i came to the wsop and like 2006 2007 were like my first two wsops mm -hmm. and you love to see people from a country other than the u.s at the i mean there were a few online players who were good from other countries but like mostly like you heard a french accent or italian accent <laughs> and you were like oh yeah these guys have no idea like like we invented poker like yeah, poker yeah. is our game <laughs> it's called texas hold'em <laughs> <laughs> yeah now you see a scarf you hear an accent and you just you yeah, know you're like oh, get these euros off my table yeah <laughs> know they're about to run over you yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> anything else you want to talk about um um i just want to give a quick shout out to um, um a couple of people that i got a chance to see on this trip um russ came up for a couple of days pie farmer some of you guys may know him long time listener of the podcast uh he just missed andrew he was on his way out as Andrew was coming in. Yeah, sorry to miss you, Russ. And um, uh, my buddy uh, Shadrack, that I I saw him and uh, Marshall, and I saw Irene, but I didn't talk to her. She looked like she was in a bad mood. But just just so many friends that you know, because I don't play live poker um, anymore or as much anymore, I don't come to Cherokee like I used to. So there's so many like. Cherokee friends that I haven't seen in a long time. So it was cool to see those guys again. 
So this actually reminds me of a funny story, and probably the person who's involved in the story is going to hear this. So I want to make clear: there's, I, I don't like uh, mind that you did this or, or begrudge that. You, I just think it's like a funny situation that we ended up in. It's like a, a funny level of like celebrity that I occupy in the poker world, where there's like a small number of people who are like pretty excited to see me, uh-huh. but like an overwhelming majority of people who have no idea who I am. Um, so it, like, this is not the first time that, I, that I've been in this situation where someone is like, oh, it's Andrew Brokus. Hey, it's so, so interesting to meet you. Hi. And then like calls over his friend. He's like, hey, come here. This is Andrew Brokus. And the friend has no idea who I am. <laughs> and it's such an awkward, like, <laughs> it's like, it's who? What? What is, yeah. what, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm, this is a poker. <laughs> What's it called? Yeah. Thinking what? I'm like, yeah. oh, God. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't forget that story because you reminded me of the other story that I wanted to tell at the beginning where we're walking in the hall and a guy comes up and shakes my hand. He's like, Carlos, shakes my hand. Happy to see you here. Then he looks at Andrew and he says, I know it's either Nate or Andrew. Uh, And he's like waiting for Andrew to speak, but Andrew didn't say anything, so he couldn't get a read on his voice. And he's like, uh, Andrew? <laughs> and then Andrew says, you want to flip? <laughs> so that was a pretty cool moment. I actually wonder, if, it might have thrown him off if I spoke, because a lot of people have mentioned, mm. I mean, a lot, a lot like five, but <laughs> right. several people have mentioned when they actually met Nate or me in person that they thought, you know, I looked the way Nate sounded <laughs> and, and vice versa, which I feel like has to be a dig at one of us, but I have to which, which one should be offended. <laughs> right. That's funny. That never occurred to me. I guess because um, did I, I can't remember if I had known about the podcast before I met you. I feel like my initial experience with um, since we're in North Carolina, I'll say y'all's voices. <laughs> um, it was in person, so I immediately have the correct, you know, voice to face connection. But I can see some people on the uh, listeners of the podcast who haven't um, met you in person getting confused by that. But for me, it's like, yeah, um, it's just funny when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. That, was, that was a cool experience. But, but it, was, it, was, it was good to meet you. Thank you for saying hello. Thank you. For, hopefully your friend now is listening to the podcast as well. So what's up? Yeah. <laughs> Fitness has this policy where, uh, so I go in, 
I'm not there to work out. I'm there to take a shower. It takes 15, 20 minutes. So you come in, they say, oh, welcome to Planet Fitness. I run in and take my shower. And as I'm leaving the door, every time they're like, um, no, when I'm coming in, say, enjoy your workout. And say, um, and then in my mom think I'm not working out. And they always catch me on the way out and say, like, have a good day or something like that. And it always strikes me as like, I know you didn't work out. I know you're just using our showers and you can't sneak out the door. I caught you before you left. That's what it feels like. And it's like they time it perfectly. Like, I think I've like passed the yeah, lady. Yeah, they like catch you on the back foot. As soon yeah. as my hand touches the door, they say it. One time the lady was in the back and she ran out to say it. And I was like, leave me alone. Let me just leave. Like, you don't have to like thank me for working out when I didn't work out. Yeah, I feel like that's almost certainly a corporate policy where they're just supposed to say that. Yeah. That would explain why she's like sprinting from the back. Yeah, yeah. Like she would get in trouble if she doesn't, right. you know, thank everybody as they leave. And I like, it's so annoying. I wish they would stop doing that. Um, but yeah. That that's the one that that took the the um, I guess good neighbor policy of a company that tilts me the most is the thanking me as I leave from um, using a shower instead of being on the treadmill like the other three hundred pound people that come in. <laughs> I feel like they caught me like you're not working out here. Well, I don't think they care. Like if anything, that's like good for them. I mean, you're putting less like you're not uh, like I imagine one of the biggest issues for people going to Planet Fitness or like just gyms in general is like they don't like the gym to be crowded. Like they want to be able to use their like favorite piece of equipment. They don't want to have to wait, etc. So like if you're paying the same fee as those people are and you're not contributing to any kind of weight for the machines or wait for the free weights or whatever, like you like you should be a better than average customer from their perspective. That's true, but I'm sure they don't want like yeah, I guess the big... individual employees are probably yeah. I mean, not even that. I don't think they want to be known as the place where homeless people take showers. So if there was like a lot of yeah. people doing it, then they would have a problem. With yeah, it. I guess they don't want to be. I mean, they are that though, right? <laughs> I, guess they, I guess they are. Like you're definitely not the only person who does this. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. Yeah, I, I guess like it's not good for their brand image to be like known as that. Right. So I kind of feel. I kind of feel like they know that um um you know hurting their brand image when i but again that's just me being overly sensitive like they're not thinking about me this it's all in my head yeah <laughs>